Welcome to What The If. Philip Shane here, uh, documentary filmmaker, lover of science, irrepressible curiosity maven. That's it. I'm out of, uh, I have no more adjectives. That's all we need to know. That voice is the sonorous tones of Professor Matthew Stanley of the New York University. How are you, sir? Uh, I am. Um, I, I had a bagel this morning, so I'm in a pretty good mood. Oh, oh, fantastic. That's how you know we're in New York. That's right. <laughs> the, the, def- the, the distinction between a good day and a bad day is bagels. Yeah. And, and we haven't done this in a while. Would you describe for the... Uh, for the listeners, what, what, who are you when you're not talking into this microphone? Oh, when I'm not talking into this microphone, I am a historian of science, um, which means I uh, take a look at the long road science has had getting us to where we are today, how ideas are formed and changed and influenced by the world around us and influence the world around us. Basically, about how science is done by people for people. Ah, very, by people, for people. That's very good. That's very, uh, I think you're channeling Abraham Lincoln there. Yep, I'm actually wearing a big hat right now. (laughs) Or Thomas Jefferson. I don't know. (laughs) My, see, I need a historian of American history. Okay. But we're, I'm very, very excited to have a very special guest today who can uh, also talk in the vein of science and how scientists think. Jancy McPhee. Dr. Jancy McPhee, how are you? Executive Director of the SciArt Exchange. Good morning, Matt and Philip and anybody who's listening. It is awesome to be here, although I am feeling already at a distinct disadvantage because it's earlier here in Houston and I didn't have a chance to have breakfast. So. Oh no, not even a bagel? Yeah, so no bagels, uh, had a piece of fruit and some coffee just to make sure that you know I could make words. So I, I think I'm good, but uh, you know, bear with me here. Jensi and I were having a wonderful discussion um, about a week ago talking about actually also one of my favorite topics too, which is the cultural, this is going to sound very academic, and I I will shortly make it more exciting, the cultural gap between artists and scientists. Here is an anecdote. This is a real-life anecdote that happened that I think explains this perfectly. So I have two friends, and they're a couple. Uh, One is a scientist, and the other is an artist. And they were having a debate about whether, basically, whether each one's work was like the others. And the artist said to um, the scientist, uh, oh, you know, people don't understand that art is a lot like science. And the scientist said, uh, people don't understand that science isn't as, you know, uh, there is some art there's some aspects of art or what it's like to be an artist within science. I will also say I have been in far more confrontational situations where the artist says, I, you don't get it, you don't see the full world. And the scientist says the same thing. So I think as we get into this, we'll see what that means. And so, what the if? An artist and a scientist went into a cage 
for a cage match. Two minds enter, one mind leaves. That does not mean that one devoured the other, but simply that they came to one mind. Left the brain behind. Okay, I'm I'm not, I'm not liking that imagery. Leave leave it half a brain behind. As a neuroscientist, that's kind of nasty. <laughs> Sorry for okay. the neuroscientist. That <laughs> was a waste. I, I was actually thinking, you know, an, another analogy is kind of like you know being stuck in the elevator with each other and the brakes, and now they have to talk to each other and figure out how to get out of that elevator. <laughs> you know what? That's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> Let's forget cage match, elevator disasters, elevator disaster. Yeah, trapped so. in an elevator. Everyone's worst nightmare, stuck in there with somebody you really don't want to talk to. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and you have to work together. Oh, no. What are we going to do? Yeah, okay. So this elevator, uh, what kind of building are we in? Where, where, where would an artist and a scientist find themselves in an elevator together? It's got to be New York. It's going to be a super tall skyscraper, and they're, like, stuck way up there. It's even one of those elevators that starts at the 25th floor, you know, so they're way up in the atmosphere. All right. That sounds good. We'll say that, because my favorite, one of my favorites, the Empire State Building, which features, the Empire State Building seems to feature prominently in our show. It's a good. It does happen occasionally. It has a, a number of, of useful purposes as examples. So you're trapped in an elevator in the Empire State Building. Um, a scientist and an and a artist were both had been enjoying the view from the top of the Empire State Building, and then got in this elevator. And for some reason, it was a slow day, unusually at the Empire State Building, and there was just two of them. And they got in the elevator, and it snags and stops. They introduce each other, and does either one of them is is either one of them n- nervous? Oh my gosh! How could you not be nervous being stuck in an elevator? But you know the the scientists will just start pushing all the buttons, you know, <laughs> just to see what happens. Yeah. yeah. And what might the artist do? Um, kind of look around, look for some other buttons. You know, get get sort of the the bigger picture. Maybe try calling. Calling is good. In person communication. We'll see what happens that way. But the but the cool thing is none of that's working. So now there's really an issue. Naturally, yeah. <laughs> this is going to become a disaster film pretty soon. Erwin <laughs> <laughs> Ir- Allen's least popular <laughs> movie. Uh, that'll be great. It's the, it's the towering podcast. Right. right. Mm-hmm. The towering Socratic debate. <laughs> Someone comes on and... and, and uh, it just announces on the little speaker, you know, just hang on. We'll, we've got people on the way. Okay. So now they're, they're sitting there and they chat. And what kind of scientist do we have? I'm, I'm going to say a neuroscientist. That's what? Yeah. Go ahead. Pick on us. No, no, not pick on honor. Honoring. Who else would you rather be trapped in an elevator with than a neuroscientist? It's true. True. Well, gosh, I'm feeling flattered already. This is awesome. <laughs> and... Yeah. What kind of artist? I mean, I, I must say, when I think of artists, the, the thing that seems to automatically come to mind is a painter. They start talking about the nature of reality, as one might. Let's give them names. Matt, would you like to give them names? Oh, um, well, traditionally, in elevator thought experiments, you have Alice and Bob. 
So Alice is the scientist, and Bob mm -hmm. is the artist, the painter. They push the button and they ring emergency services. Um, and the person on the other end says, what's wrong? Uh, Alice, as the stereotypical scientist who is not well trained in telling stories or talking about things, what kind of mistakes does she make when describing the situation? Hmm. So she'll say, well, you know, the, the elevator has stopped. And I'm, and you know, the, the, the green button that's supposed to be on is not flashing and I don't see any evidence of movement and it's been at least, uh, 90 seconds now. And I know that the elevator's usually on a 30 second floor to floor, um, lift and lower. So, um, what do you think is going on? Do you have any data? Ah, okay. And the artist says, we're all going to die. Oh my gosh! We're running out of air. This, this, this is like my worst nightmare, and um, yeah. and I've been like, like I, I, I really, you got to get me out of here. I do have um some concerns about this. I've got a little claustrophobia too. So, uh, wh when do you when do you think you can get us out of here? And the artist thinks that this is happening for a reason. That they 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 must have done something wrong, you know. Or maybe it's, you know, divine, not, not divine, let's not get religious here, right. but, you know, like being thrown, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that they were meant to talk to each other, or do you think they were meant to be stuck? Like, is it an, is it a... Oh, that's, yeah. <laughs> they start to imagine, I think we're in a simulation, we may actually be, it, this may have come about because we are the subject of a podcast in another dimension. <laughs> Whoa, that is so. <laughs> well, let, here, let's let's take a moment. Actually, we can sort of. Uh, I'm, I feel I'm feeling a little claustrophobic by this situation, and let's just take a break and say because I think we're torn between uh, not wanting to be stereotypical and 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 the yes. need to be stereotypical for the sake of argument. So, um, which way do we? Which way are we going to go? Are we going to be evolved? Or are we going to be what we need to be working on evolving? That's a tough one. Come on, you're the historian. That's right. Yeah. So for 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 the sake of edification, we should probably stick with uh, our problematic stereotypes for now, and then we can resolve them later. Right. So let's define the stereotype. So Matt, what's the stereotype of a? Uh, which one would you like to describe? To sci uh, oh, sure. Or? So the stereotype for the scientist will be. Um, uh, lack of social skills, over rationality, uh, lack of imagination. Yeah, and inability. And this is actually a real thing. I have, you know, at last with all stereotypes, there's there's a bit of truth in each. And for instance, when I was doing the Einstein, the documentary about Einstein, that Matt, that's how I met you. You were in that. Some scientists, actually, some historians too, uh, scholars, uh, had a lot of trouble saying things that they couldn't fully provide all the footnotes and all the dots, connect all the dots and provide all the, you know what I mean? Right. A third, like mm -hmm. to, to in, in their most frustrated moment, they might say, I cannot dumb this down. Right. And, and uh, I think one thing you realize is for instance, if you try to teach general relativity to a general audience, <laughs> then you got to do some simplifications and you gotta be willing to accept stuff something actually we do on this show all the time right like well you know it's yeah. just for all intents and purposes let's just say that's uh but 
Jancy, what would you what would be the stereotypical artist? Well, let me add a couple to the scientists, a couple that I, you know, because I, I, I am constantly trying to approach artists about doing collaborations with scientists and vice versa. So uh, we can add to the scientists that they they have a, a persona, the stereotypic persona is that they're cold. Um, and just I- expanding on what you said about, you know, not not talking well, you know, they, they the jargon you know, they always speak in words that nobody understands. Um, but an important thing is that they appear condescending uh, be- mm-hmm, because of mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is, okay, so then we move to the artist and, you know, the stereotype. And please, you know, we're we're asking forgiveness of all scientists and artists <laughs> out there. Yes. Um, the stereotype will be a, sort of the flighty person who who again, may not necessarily be able to always articulate. Like sometimes you have trouble following what they're trying to say because it seems it's not, it's not, it's like all over the place and, you know, and they're very emotional and, um, and, and they're, they're talking about dimensions that you don't quite get. And, uh, but let's also add, they too can be somewhat condescending towards Mm -hmm. the scientists you know, you just don't understand. You have such a narrow viewpoint. You know, you can only see things in one way. This is a higher dimension and you're just totally not getting it. So there's a lot of attitude on both sides for our stereotypes. And an attitude is one of the things that makes it hard to talk to each other, plus the common language. They have to, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be searching for this common language. You know, if, if I start talking about, you know, my kids used to laugh at me because um, we. My husband's also a scientist. We'd use a lot of science in the kitchen, so you know, I'd, I'd make a make a giant lasagna and then I'd aliquot it and put it in the freezer. And everyone's like, "What?" <laughs> well, you know, I turned broke it into little pieces and put it in the freezer. Oh, okay, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> no, what no, is that word? Talk- Ale- I've never heard that word before. You Aliquot? haven't heard the word aliquot? Oh my gosh, no. now I really am in trouble. It so, sounds like a fruit. Um, it sounds like a fruit, yeah. yes. Like a kumquat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, like in the laboratory, I, I, I did mostly biochemistry and molecular biology as a neuroscientist. So I was working on molecules and, and parts of molecules. And, you know, you, you would, you'd have like a common solution that you needed for your experiments but, you know, maybe you'd make it only once a month and then you'd, you'd pour it into little smaller um, bottles and then maybe you would freeze it so it wouldn't go bad. That would be aliquoting the solution. You know, in, in addition, we didn't let our kids drink out of the orange juice bottle because that was the general stock of, <laughs> of, of the solution. And so my kids grew up talking about the general stock and aliquoting. And this is in the kitchen. This is a good this is a good example because (laughs) the moment you used that word, the kids felt uh, let's say perhaps a number of things, but uh, the feeling of being around somebody who starts using words that you don't understand that you all you understand is you do know that that comes from let's say their knowledge, their great knowledge. You can take people have an insecurity 
feeling that they sort of automatically think they're being talked down to that the person used that word to sort of yeah uh, yeah to to put them down yeah to put to put an air on now of course that wasn't my kids experience because you know they had two nerdy parents so you know (laughs) to them that was normal but um yes and um it took me that you know the first time i used that term i i didn't realize i was using that term you know it was just such a convenient way to describe partitioning the lasagna and freezing it yes Mm -hmm. i'm going to aliquot it now it's that term is probably only meant for liquids but you know the point was was there oh sure um but definitely there is this belief that if you use non-common terms that you're sort of trying to put some airs on yourself you know putting Mm -hmm. on airs and that is a total turnoff and so, you know, like like in our little scenario with Bob and Alice, when when Alice asked for, so what's the data on, you know, the elevator, probably not just the artist, but possibly even the person who answered the phone call was like, oh, we got one of those in the <laughs> elevator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, I, it's funny because I, this reminds me when I go into an art museum, for instance, and I'm going to go into the exhibit. And there's always a huge wall of text uh, on, on, before you go in, right? And then sometimes there will be uh, in little, you know, more a, a more detailed description next to a particular painting or photograph uh, than just the name and what the thing was made of, right? And or sometimes there's a handout sheet or whatever. Anyway, these things tend to use all right. You're reading stuff. You're like, what? Oh, it deals. It's it deals with both space and time and poverty and capitalism, right? And I just sort of use, and, and, and lots of other terms that I don't even understand. And it just annoys the heck out of me. <laughs> uh, and I could use an even stronger word because, like, I just, it, it seems, frankly, it seems like BS to me. And that's unfair. That's a gut reaction. Whereas, because I am more sympathetic to scientists sometimes, if I were reading that, uh, let's say in a science museum, I would just think, "Ooh, I need to learn the. I need to understand these words." Um, so that comes down to, I think, a matter of: Do you feel you need? Is it important to understand? And that comes into uh, getting into the heads of the different people. And as, as a documentary filmmaker, this is something I deal with all the time. It's like I'm trying. If I'm making a documentary about somebody, I won't need to figure out a way so the audience can relate to that person and. To begin with, I have to be the one that figures out, okay, how does this person see the world? So actually, I feel like that's a better way to describe it, as, as I think out loud, um, how each one sees the world. And the scientist view of how they see the world and the artist view of how they see the world, they both think are obviously valid and probably more valid if they're being ungenerous than the others. Um, so, well, you know, I can't, yeah. I can't. I can't, I can't look at the world like an artist because mm. I've had 20 years of training to look at the world like a scientist. But what I can do is value different ways of looking at things. And I think one of the nice things that an artist seems pretty good at, and, and you know, maybe I'm making this up since, again, I can't look at the world like an artist – is I, I think one of the cool things is that they'll look at it differently. So if I'm looking at the world like a scientist, I might be looking at the details of what you know what's around me. 
Although that's not totally fair either. No, but again, we're sticking with our stereotypes. So let's say they're right. looking at the details. Right. Um, whereas maybe the artist would walk in and get the overall feel of an environment or a room. I don't know. You know, that, mm-hmm. that would be really interesting that we, we are kind of missing the artist on this podcast. Well, actually, no, I, I can right. I can provide. I can, oh, except you're an artist. I, I wear both hats. <laughs> I wear both hats. Um, and and in fact, I, I think that one of the biggest problems uh, uh, where, let's say, artists and scientists, again, stereotypes, stereotypes uh, can't talk, have difficulty talking to each other, understanding each other, and in the worst case, validating e- each other's um, uh, view of the world or whatever, is that the art art is based on emotion. Uh, that is the most important aspect. Now, certainly, you're gonna again, you're gonna find artists who say, no, 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 it's not about that. Um, but uh, you know, Brecht or <laughs> his uh, descendant David Mamet or something might say, no, actually, I I use devices to sort of make it not emotional. But anyway, for the most part, music it's all about emotion, right? The whole thing is, you go into an art museum, you go into an exhibit, and you want to feel things. In fact, one of the reasons I'm, I get annoyed, I guess, by reading all this intellectual what I would call mumbo jumbo because I don't understand it is I just wanted to go in this room and see how these pictures make me feel. And uh, so the art is all about emotion. And in science, emotion is the enemy. Yes. Mm. We're, we're sort of, we are, we are trying to find the absolute truth. Yeah. And the, the, the best scientist recognizes that they are, limited by their own perspective that they are they are human and they're taking in the data uh, of truth limited by their own perspectives but they they still try to collect enough information that that they can get beyond that and we do try to take our feelings out of it but because we are humans we're not really 100% able to take our feelings out of it Um, but I, I you know I think um I, th- I think, so So I have an interesting experience. I wanted to talk about your, sort of your art museum experience and, and talking to some people in the arts field. The artwork that my nonprofit deals with has to actually be able to communicate a message to its listeners and viewers. And so I remember once going and talking to a curator to ask them if they wanted to show some of our artwork, and it was a a modern art museum. And within 15 minutes, our conversation was over. And, And I said, what's up? And he said, well, your artwork is too obviously relaying information. You know, true high art is meant to be obscure. Uh Yeah, and and not so obvious, so that it engenders in every person something different and unique. So now, of course, that's a very particular style of art, and you know that was just one person. But there are a lot of times when when art is not trying to serve a function, it's it's trying to serve, you know, in a it's trying to engender an emotion or a new experience, just as you've been saying really well, Philip. You know. Um, and I, and I think that that's interesting. So, so what are elevator folks, how do you think they, do you think the artist would be focusing more on how he feels about being stuck in the elevator than the scientist 
or 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 is that just taking the stereotypes too far? Well, I think mm. I, I think in in the most sort of again a little bit more generous um, way of seeing this scene, they got nothing to do, so they're just sitting there. Right. And in fact, what's fascinating about that situation is what's the best use of your time? And the artist might actually say, uh, you know, wow, this is a perfect like experience where in modern life it's always so busy you know that this is the opposite of modern life we're stuck in a box we cannot go anywhere and interesting we could you know um maybe i'm going to meditate or something like that and i could imagine the scientist again stereotypes feel like we need to qualify but because we all know scientists and we and we and some of us are them or have been them in different parts of our lives we scientists and we love them but i'm also also no artist and we love them so we're not trying to offend anyone but i can imagine the scientists there certainly are some that would say meditation i mean that is i could be learning things here or i could be working the scientist tends to work inefficient use of time perfect to be stuck there perfect there's a paper they need to finish editing exactly and i didn't bring my computer with me in the elevator i can't believe this is happening to me what an incredible waste of time right so in fact here's a way to think about the scientist would turn would say okay well what's given that i can't do any of that the best use of this time might be to use to figure out something uh, about this situation, or in other words, Matt, Matt, what would you think? So the scientist, what, what, how's the scientist going to make the use, make the best of this situation? Uh, well, we decided Alice was a neuroscientist, right? Um, uh huh. Yeah. So, uh, so I don't know, Jancy. What kind of experiments can a neuroscientist run on somebody, like without equipment and things? <laughs> Well, they they'll, they'll be observing the behavior. Are we observing? Is the neuroscientist observing her um, her own behavior, or is she is she sort of starting to inspect Bob? Yeah, I'd imagine she starts inspecting Bob. Okay, all right. <laughs> so so she's looking at Bob, and you know she hasn't got her computer, and um, and frankly, she, you know since she's so digital, she she forgot to bring a piece of paper and a pen too. <laughs> So, um, so she's just, she's just, you know, you know, I got, I got to be efficient, got to make the most of this. So I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna talk to Bob and, and I'm, I'm going to try to tell Bob a little bit about my work, you know, because what I do is important. Ah, and, okay. um, a so bit of outreach. Yeah, a little bit of outreach, you know, um, but it's going to be a journey for me because I'm going to start talking about, you know, ATP and cyclic AMP and, you know, and um, beta adrenergic receptors and all of that. And and Bob's going to be looking at me like I'm speaking a different language. Well, actually, here it's interesting. I happen to bring up the idea of meditation. And uh, they're both about the brain in some ways. And so let's say the artists who are also, let's say we're going to expand it, say more a spiritual person for whatever that means to you. And they, when they meditate, they feel there's some people that just meditate because it helps them relax, it helps them get over anxiety, whatever. But this person, as as many do, feels that actually they, by going into different states of mind through meditation, they're actually going to other dimensions. Um, and I don't mean fit like physical spacey dimensions, just who knows what, just like their experience and as their imagination goes. For instance, some people will say they see the blue light as they're meditating, right? And they feel like 
that blue light is leading them forward into an, you know, another world in some ways, a psychic world, a dream world, all that kind of stuff. Whereas the scientists, especially the neuroscientists, might say, well, no, actually what's happening there is that's just the um, the reverse of the after, you, you looked at something red or something, or when you close your eyes, uh, you get reddish light that comes through, and the inverse of that is blue. I don't know how accurate this is, but it's, it's, just, it's just a physical effect that's happening in your brain. Um, so the neuroscientist really like sees the brain as a physical object, yeah. I would say, whereas yeah. the, the other person sees doesn't even see the brain, doesn't care what the physical thing is, doesn't matter. It's just a device to take them to other, I don't know. Well, meditation is a good example yeah. because it's something that everyone tells me I need to do, but I have a lot of trouble doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I think of, uh, you know, I, I'm, having, I'm having a little trouble thinking about the difference between meditation and a quick nap so (laughs) (laughs) and maybe it's because every time i try to meditate i fall asleep but that's that's another problem it's not about me it's about alice but i think you're right i think i think that um meditation is kind of an interesting metaphor because you know, the the neuroscientist might be thinking very much about the sort of the physical f- effects. You know, I'm slowing my heart rate. I'm changing my oxygen and carbon dioxide input and outflow. Um, I'm dampening the the activity of the nerve cells in my brain, and I'm trying to find another zone. And the artist is maybe trying to understand why am I stuck in this elevator through meditation? You know, you know there, there must be a reason I'm going to try to, to think through this. And, and this is horribly stereotypical. But, you know, um, it, it, that is a sort of an interesting example. You know, being in me- different mental states, the belief in, in these different mental states. I mean, mm-hmm. there, is, there is some of that in neuroscience. I, I actually... I talk a lot about if you need to solve a problem, be aware whether you're only approaching it with one mental approach rather than standing back and trying others. So mm-hmm. in, in a functional sense, we have we have we do have different, you know, maybe the neuroscientists would say different sets of neurons are now attacking this problem, yeah. you know. Um, but you can put yourself in different frames of mind, and there is a physical manifestation of that, you know, in your brain. Yeah. But is is that what's important at this moment? Are we focusing on the right part? Well, I don't he, mean you, me, and Matt. You know. <laughs> right, right, right. I think actually what happens is, and and this is how these discussions, let's say, between an artist and a scientist, might devolve in some ways, um, and it comes down to. Um, uh, in situ- when we talk about these stereotypes, actually, I think what's interesting is what's really important is that the opposite, the other, the other, these are these are stereotypes that each one has of the other, and that's really yes. important right. and really real. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether it sounds judgmental or not; these are gut react. This is emotion, and so you know, there's definitely people who are not scientists, just feel this attitude and scientists when they you know when you're approached with these things that are very different from your way of thinking um it it can be intense and so i think one thing that people find troubling about scientists is the 
And I'm going to say, this is something I, as this is what the creative side of me struggles when I hear scientists who I very, very much respect say, well, I don't know, we can't test it, so who cares? Or I'm not going to think about it. Or that. why is that important? Like, why yeah. do I even need mm-hmm. to know that? Scientists will say things like, there's this one expression I find maddening. That's not even a valid question. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I do, when I, you know, there are certain areas where I, I can kind of understand, but, but it's so subtle and nuanced and whatever. But that I, I really wonder, and I, here I can ask you both as scientists uh, um, in parts of your life, do they really mean that when they, in other words, what happened before the Big Bang? Okay. The scientists will say, uh, I don't know. And they just seem, they just shut it down. And it's true, they don't know. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't know what happens there. Don't, don't they, what, what, what goes through the scientist's mind when they ponder the Big Bang and, or, or some, some sort of thing well, where they so hit a limit? Well, scientists are professionally discouraged from talking about anything other than their highly focused expertise. What they so, know. And sometimes that highly focused expertise is extremely focused. So you meet somebody, a biologist, and they say, well, yeah, I'm a biologist, but I study butterflies. And you're like, okay, so, but I don't really study butterflies. I study this particular wing shape on this one butterfly that is found in this corner of southeastern Nigeria. So if you have a question about other butterflies, I can't help you. And of course, that's not true. <laughs> they, they know a lot about butterflies. Um, but in terms of the kind of social structure of the sciences, you're encouraged to get laser beam focused on one thing and just talk about that. And, th- and that is actually the reality of, of being a scientist. You know, if, if somebody finds out that I'm a biologist or a neuroscientist, they instantly want me to, you know, maybe psychoanalyze their nephew. And, um, you know, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I if, if you got a broken molecule, I could mutate it for you. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I can't I can't help you with your with your nephew. Um, and again, that would be the stereotypical reaction. Uh, so I totally agree. Um, but I, I I also think, you know, again, Alice and Bob are are probably having trouble communicating because they don't respect each other mm. oh. I think I think respect is is one of the biggest problems between these these two because of because of this we're, we're dealing in stereotypes and so for instance when when Bob pulls out his phone you know because they're talking about you know what they do and he, he wants to sh- show some of his art to Alice and you know he starts scrolling through and Alice is is you know She's she's being nice, you know. She's not she's not mad. Oh, oh, yes, lovely. But what she's really thinking in her head is, I totally don't get that, and it's useless. Yeah, you know. And in it's, fact, it's, yeah, I, yeah. That's I, it. I feel like the scientist also again, if I can put on my science hat, science heart actually, um, I would say one thing about being a scientist and if you know a lot about something this is probably true for any field but let's say science they're holding their phone and i want actually i'm literally having experience i've been watching on youtube uh video because we did some episodes about the history of computers and how computers actually work uh, a while back which i found so fascinating cool. it got me this podcast i listened to <laughs> did three episodes on it 
this one. And uh, I was like, I need to learn more. So I've been learning more about how the transistor works and blah, blah, blah. And um, I badly want to convey to uh, my wife the unbelievable thing I learned that my laptop computer here, my MacBook, has four billion if I sound like Carl Sagan for a second, four billion, <laughs> billion transistors in it. And those four billion transistors are not like in the big box of the entire laptop. They are in a tiny two inch by two inch square or something of the CPU, right? And um, I think we all have this experience. I I have hesitated to, to to even do this because I kind of know what the reaction will be. Like, oh, that's, yeah, you're funny for, well, that's kind of, yeah, neat. Okay, what, what? And then um, she's not an artist. She actually is a school teacher and, and deals with uh, the visually impaired students and things like that. So it's just a whole other thing. It's people who don't have any, they've not spent time building up a framework of science or how science thinks in their brain. Uh, so what, I guess what I was saying there about the phone is I want to point out, uh, yeah, your art is very lovely, Bob, uh, but do you have any idea the uh, and, and, and the scientists might even be tempted to use the word miracle, as I almost said, that's going on inside that phone. Um, how do you get someone to appreciate something that... This, I think, is the biggest challenge of science communication, right? Is how to draw people in and get them to appreciate something incredible. Right. Well, I think that would be really interesting is, is for Bob to try to explain one of his artworks and for oh. Alice... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Alice to actually come through and you know and 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 try to really understand you know I mean they're stuck in there you know they're they're humans they they let's say they're nice they want to understand each other yeah and um so this is this is may not be what Bob's artwork is but I had a lot of trouble walking in this was a decades ago into an art museum in Los Angeles and the feature artwork was a giant blue square. Yeah, nice. Everybody loves a good square. I do. I love that. I get very excited when I walk in the room. So maybe maybe Bob's phone has a giant blue square on it. <laughs> yeah. And Alice is like, okay, can you explain it to me? So what's Bob going to say about his giant blue square? And and how is how is Alice going to respond to that? So so actually, I can say so. This is what um, Bob. I'll play Bob for a bit here. Um, Please. Well, first of all, unfortunately, I'm showing this to you on my phone, and um, it's very small. This is actually a painting I did that is very large. Um, it's twelve feet by twelve feet. You know, twelve feet high and twelve feet wide, and so. Uh, you're not having any experience. You're seeing what is basically a thumbnail, in a way, of this image. And so I, I understand why you're having no reaction to this. But uh, if you, if we ever get out of this elevator alive, <laughs> it'd be great if you could walk down the street to the Museum of Modern Art, where there's a similar painting. And you walk into a room, and the feeling of being in the presence of this enormous blue square is very unsettling and for different people it's going to be unsettling for different reasons um but i bet you it's not going to be that same feeling of like well my kid could do that that might be a little bit of it but the size of it is is important to the experience 
And as you stare at it, the longer you stare at it, you will start to see things and you'll start to feel like you are in the presence of the, uh, of some, you are in the presence of mystery, for instance. Mm. The scientist might then say, well, oh, well, that's how I feel, you know, when I look at pictures from the Hubble telescope. Or I look I, at. I think the scientist might also say, "So, what's your message? What are you trying yeah. to tell me?" Yeah, I'm not trying because to tell you anything. I'm just trying to get you to feel, man. <laughs> get me to feel, okay? Well, and and then then the Hubble telescope images might be a good thing for me to pull up on, uh, you know, Alice to pull up on her phone yeah. to say, "You, you want to see pretty? Take a look at this." <laughs> That'd be good. And then, yeah. then actually, I think that may start them on a road to realize they have a common ground. Actually, and then you know what Bob would yeah. do? Bob would, and this is what I would do. <laughs> Bob would say, oh, yeah, they're, but let's say they're looking at like a classic image from the Hubble telescope of the, uh, what they call the pillars of creation or something like that. And oh, that's my favorite. Right, beautiful <laughs> nebula and stars glowing and all this kind of stuff. And Bob would say, may I, may I borrow your phone for a second? And he would take it and he would pinch and zoom into that image further and further and further into so that he goes between all the stars and he finds a section that's just blackness and he fills the entire phone with that. And he says, look at that part of the image. And the scientist, yes, yes, that's the void. That's like, that's exactly the part of it. Uh, he's like, many people don't even see that part of the image. They're just looking at the pretty colors. But it's the vastness, you know, of that that drives me to do, my, if they're an astro astronomer, maybe, uh, drives me to do what I do. And Bob would say, well, that's what I'm trying to do with my square. Ah. And Alice yeah. would say, you you think your cube is big. You you think your blue square is big. Look at my my pillars of creation. Ah, you want to talk big. <laughs> right. That's big, baby. <laughs> So, and I should yeah. say, you know, if this is a 70s disaster movie, as it seems to, seem to have set up, this is the stage is that they, they argue with each other for a while and don't get anything done. And then they find out they have something in common that then right. gets them started on the long road to escape or whatnot. Yeah. At least making, making the, the weight tolerable. But I still think the image of, you know... Alice getting on Bob's shoulders to move that ceiling tile and crawl out. You know, that's the true adventure story. But, you know, that, that would have to happen with a little bit more time. Well, they would look up and they'd realize there was this blue square on the ceiling that was the way out. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's perfect. It's the blue square. You yeah. know, we got to keep the whole blue square thing. Going. I bet there was a blue square in the Hubble image, too. <laughs> well, one pixel, one pixel. Yeah. So this is the greater purpose of why they were brought together is to discover the blue square. And it's no accident that in their insanely claustrophobic position, uh, their minds went to the vastness of emptiness and <laughs> no claustrophobia, yeah. agoraphobia. Um, and it was a, it was a shared experience. So they, they've really achieved that single mindedness that you are hoping for. It's a shared experience and yeah. appreciation, looking at the blue square in many different ways. Um, so, th so there's hope even for our stereotypes. Absolutely.
Absolutely. And I must say, we do, just like that couple I mentioned at the very beginning of the show, there are a lot of couples where one is an artist and one is a scientist, or they are of you know completely different sets of um, uh, ways of seeing things. And uh, they, they find other connections or they agree to disagree or... <laughs> Or who knows what? Or hopefully, over time, they actually come to appreciate a little bit. I don't think that barrier is ever really fully crossed, um, you know. Without spending a lifetime as an artist, let's say, and without spending a lifetime as a scientist, you'll never fully be able to think in all the the ways that each one does. But uh, we can certainly come to coming to appreciate each other and end the uh, intolerant aspect or the the sense of dismissiveness. Yeah, the disrespect would would be a good thing to get past and and to realize that that there is shared experience and validity. You know, the different ways of thinking are are useful and and everybody grows from coming to appreciate that and and trying some of those things on their own. So I, I think Alice and Bob are are kind of walking out of there. Hey, you know what? They get rescued and then they go for coffee. Yeah, that sounds yes. nice. The great yeah, unifier. Yeah, maybe a bagel. A bagel. Because they, they missed lunch, <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, I, I think that's what's going to happen. And then they're going to go down the street and look at the blue square that Bob made. Or it wasn't Bob, but it was similar. That's right. And then, you know, Alice says, hey, you know, I'd, I'd love to, um, I'm going to give a talk about my work at, at NYU um, later this week. And I'd love if you would come and ask me some questions later. And they're like fast friends. This is totally awesome. Yay. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. Sorry, sorry, it wasn't a cage fight, but you know, hey, <laughs> no, no, it was. It was a, it was an intellectual cage fight, the most, oh, the bloodiest the kind. The <laughs> yeah, those are the best. Totally. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Thank you for helping us out with this, Jancy. Tell us a little bit. How about you? This is a little bit. What does the Sci Art Exchange? It, how does what we talked about kind of relate to what you? would do there what's what can people learn what would you like people to know about sci art exchange and where can they find out more about it so so one of our challenges is to try to help people to kind of dabble in this other mental space so um for people of all ages and backgrounds from around the world you know our simplest model and our our most well developed at this time is we hold these international contests for people to create artwork of all types. So that includes literature and music and film and web websites and apps or whatever is their creative format about the future of space exploration and all the science and technology that needs to evolve. And okay. that that's kind of our secret way. You you take the the person who self-identifies as an engineer and you make them look at the space engineering from a slightly different perspective because now they have to paint a picture about it. Or you invite the the filmmaker to dive in and learn a whole bunch about what are we doing next in, in space and how can I tell that story in the way that, that, that I am really mo most skilled. And so it allows them to dabble. So it, it does a little bit of that crossing the barriers. It's kind of the whole blue blue square, uh, you know, experience for both of them. 
And um, but it is a competition. And then we we end up with this huge array of multimedia about the future of space exploration. And then we display it and live perform it in as many places around the world as we can. So now this artwork is impacting all the listeners and viewers. And the, the where, where we're trying to go eventually is to to really engage and educate about the future of space and all the underlying science and technology and space is a fabulous umbrella because you've got to have advances in engineering and medicine and communications and eth- and you know ethics and law and everything. It's a huge umbrella. Yeah, so anyway, yeah, it is. So anyway, you get to engage everybody in thinking about it, but you also get to invite them to become a part of it. So you, you're not just telling them, you're inviting them to to embrace it. And that's pretty important because, you know, the the world's going back to the moon and then we want to go back to Mars, go, go ahead to Mars and and live and work there and do science and even further into space. And it allows us to carry out our mission to try to, to focus on communicating about science, but also fostering people's ability to think creatively about it and also work together even if they don't already see the world in the same way, have the same training, the same background. You could see a a beautiful future where everybody is working together, whether they're artists or scientists, to solve the grand challenges of the future. And that's that's where we'd like to be. Wow, that's fantastic. We can definitely use some of that today. Thank you. And where can people go uh, to find out what's the website or? uh, Yes. mm -hmm. So the website is SCI, as in science, S-C-I, art, A-R-T, exchange.org. All right. And all one word, SCI, art, exchange.org. Fantastic. And uh, I don't know if you know, Jancy, you are going to receive a special, special gift because uh, for, for, coming on our show today and leading us down this fabulous thought experiment, uh, you are going to get a finger puppet. No way! Yeah. That oh, is yes. like the totally most awesomest thing ever. And, <laughs> and and okay, what is this finger pu- puppet so, going to look like? Well, it'll be a... Does it, does it have a message? Will it be a blue square? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> these are a little bit more, as we say in the art world, representational. <laughs> Uh, ah. But they are. It will be a, a finger puppet of a famous, uh, a great scientist or science fiction character, or in this cool. case, perhaps you know someone with an art bent. I don't know. It'll be it'll be a great figure out of um, the worlds of uh, science, art, and humanities from our friends at the Unemployed Philosophers Guild, uh, philosophersguild.com, which is an amazing group. They make all kinds of um, uh, what they say is gifts for smart, funny. Smart, funny gifts for smart, funny people. We're mm-hmm. all that. Uh, philosophersguild.com. And uh, anybody, you don't have to come on our show to get this. Uh, if you use the coupon code WTIF, you will get 10% off everything in the site. You can get plates that look like planets. You can eat on the surface of Jupiter. I dare you. So, Jancy, I'll, I'll, I'll be getting that out to you. And... Um, those of you, uh, if you haven't left us a review, that would be really great. Matt, why should someone leave a review of this show? Because it helps other people find us. Yeah. 
folks who are who are interested in the bizarre distortions of reality that we create here on a weekly basis. Uh, they don't know about that um, until they see the review. That's right. That's right. So um, on whatever podcast you uh, app or whatever your, your or website you're using right now, I'm sure there's a way to leave a review. Um, the most common being Apple Podcasts. Um, if you don't know how to do that, uh, just uh, send me an email and email me with any of your thoughts, questions, reactions, ideas for other ifs uh, at feedback at whattheif.com and you can find out all about us and listen to all our shows, all our back episodes um, actually in the podcast app you're using or go to our website, whattheif.com. We do ponder not just the blue square, but the black square that leads out of which uh, virtual, like virtual particles, virtual ifs, all kinds of scenarios will pop into existence ever so briefly, and we will try to grab them. But the fact that there is an infinite number of ifs that may come up that we need to ponder makes us How do we react, uh, Matt? We scream the name of the show. Very oh, cool. slowly. So if you would join right, us in that, that. I would, would love to be honored. We summon the gods of if as we scream. What, what the, the if?